This past week, a, uh, a young lady named Rachel Held Evans passed away. If you just heard her name, didn't know who she was, you wouldn't know anything about it. Um, 37 years old, fairly young in life to pass away. But Rachel Evans has spoken at conferences around the United States, has been heralded as a voice for the new millennial generation, a voice for progressive Christians, uh, a voice for, you know, love. Her message was one of love, and she had a passion for it. Unfortunately, it was not based on biblical truth, even though she came out of an evangelical background. Um, the hopeful thing for me is, is that she died early in life, and maybe, according to what First John says, that sometimes we can sin into death. And my hope is that she was a, a believer who just got misguided and went off the path. I certainly don't celebrate her death, but she was dangerous and misled a lot of people, all in the name of love. She only focused on love and talked about the fact that she even made the statement one time that, well, the propitiation doesn't really isn't really necessary. Propitiation is a is a biblical word that means substitutionary death of Christ. She was one who held up the fact that that really we just need to be loving to, to people and never confront them over their sin. That that God really cares more about our love for people than are, are confronting people, and people who confront are labeled as bigots. We talked about that last week and the week before. And somehow in our culture, that resonates very well with young people. They love that. They love the fact that there's a young voice who talks about the Bible, but yeah, we can be all-inclusive. We bring everybody in under the tent in the sense that everybody comes in, everybody is welcome just the way you are, and you can stay the way you are. And that was never the message of Jesus Christ. Amen. He never came to say that everybody's welcome to stay the way they are. In fact, you can't encounter Jesus without your life being changed if you really embrace who He is. I was reminded of uh, Tim Keller in his book, The Reason for God. The belief in a God of pure love who accepts everyone and judges no one is a powerful act of faith. Not only is there no evidence for it in the natural order, but there is no historical religious textual support for it. The more one looks at it, the less justified it appears. I mean, that this idea that God is just going to let you live your entire life in rebellion to Him without coming to Him and acknowledging your rebellion is anti-biblical. That's right. It goes right against the Word of God. There is wrath, and you know, God's wrath is not just an Old Testament concept. Some of us may have heard in the past, or we may have been uh, influenced even to think that the Old Testament God is a God of wrath, and the New Testament God is a God of grace, which is really not true at all. The whole biblical concept of God is He is a God of truth, He's a God of love, but He is a God of justice. And, and really, I want you to imagine for a second a 57-year-old man, which I'll just pick my age, rapes and brutally murders a 3-year-old little girl. And you're, you are the leader. You are the leader of the country where this happened. And you're in charge of justice. This is not a democracy. It's a monarchy and the person's brought... Would you be angry over that? Would you express anger over that? Would that bother you that a three-year-old little girl met her end of life at the hands of a 57-year-old man who only wanted to fulfill his sexual fantasies? Yes, it would make us all angry. And if it doesn't make you angry, something's wrong. Right. It shouldn't make us angry because God's wrath is just how as anger is how goodness responds to evil. 
And, and so God's wrath is a response to the evil that has just perverted the world that we see in the world. And what happened in the garden, guys, was evil. When Adam and Eve were told they could eat of every tree except for one, and they said, you know what? Even though this cosmic being gave us life, even though this cosmic being has given us everything we have, even though this cosmic being has put us in this place that's incredible and told us we could eat of every tree except for that one, they listened to the little voice over here that said, if he loved you, he'd let you have that one. He really knows that if you eat that tree, you're going to be just like him and he's afraid. The same kind of garbage he whispers into our ears about our lives and the little bitty things, the choices we make every day to go against God's Word, to, to do things that we know we shouldn't do, or to not do things that we should do because we're afraid of what people would think or we're afraid of how it will impact us economically. There is no small sin in the kingdom. There's no small sin. Every sin put Jesus on the cross. One little white lie that Brad might tell to somebody over here to sell them a house and bring financial gain to him is just as filthy as what Hitler did to wipe out all those Jews. Now, we have a hard time with that because in our minds we go, oh, no, he killed millions of people. Killing millions of people is not worse than killing the Son of God who was perfect and innocent in the most brutal way known to man. Do you understand that? All rebellion. It, it, the, 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 the death of Jesus on the cross was the most horrific act in history. Bar none. Nothing compares to that. You're talking about the God of the universe who came to come be among His creation lived a perfect life, did nothing to deserve that, and was brutally executed. Brutally. And we looked at that last week. We went through it. It's hard to read through it so, so harsh and inhumane. But that's God's wrath. And last week, we didn't, we didn't get into... Um, we talked about how the crucifixion brings us. We saw in the, the first really... Uh, well, 27 through 44, we saw how the, the crucifixion brought us the remedy of sin. And it brought us, it showed us the reason for suffering. And that, that sin has a terrible penalty that has to be paid. It has to be exacted. And we saw that. But we also saw the rescue of our soul in Jesus on the cross that day. He rescued us forever, our souls. The most important event in each of our lives was the day He died on that cross even though we weren't even there. That was the most event, the more important event in our life, for our lives. And today, as we look at the rest of 27 and we finish out this chapter, we're going to look at, at really... The, the, the day was divided into six hours, basically. I said it was the most important six hours in history. From 9 to 12 is what we covered last week in, in verses 27 through 44. But today, from 45 to the rest of the chapter, we're going to look from 12 o'clock straight up till His death and actually being put in the tomb. Six hours. Six is the number of man, too, by the way. Right. You know that. Three hours suffering at the hands of man, but then something happens in verse 45. For the next three hours, in all, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you see this. It mentions the fact that it was from, uh, I think it's, it, let's see what it says here. From the sixth hour, there was darkness. The sixth hour was 12 noon. And then it goes on to talk about the ninth hour. That's three in the afternoon. That's all it says about the three hours other than the fact that there was darkness. For three hours, Christ was on the cross experiencing the wrath of God and there was darkness. A supernatural darkness. A darkness like we've probably never seen in our entire life. But a darkness that's mentioned over and over in the Bible. And so as we look at this passage today before we go in there, I want to go back and revisit the first three hours just for a second. 
Because as Jesus was being crucified on the cross, one of the first things that happened is as they're nailing Him, He said, many commentators believe it was as they were nailing Him, He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Have you ever been really hurt around your wife or around your kids? Have you ever really hurt yourself? Either you, you, you cut yourself or you bumped something really bad to the point of where you got really, really hurt. Did you feel like being around anybody or being nice to anybody? I want you to imagine for a second your back being lacerated with 40 lashes from a cat of nine tails from that scourging instrument they used to rip open his back. And then he was pummeled by the Jewish leaders and he was pummeled by the Roman leaders in his face. And then they take him and he's paraded through the streets and mocked. And while they are nailing his hands to the cross and his feet to the cross, he goes, Father, forgive them. That's the most incredibly merciful thing I've ever seen in my life right there. That he would say that. How he could appropriate that at that amount of time, at, at that time, to say, Father, forgive them. There's only seven sayings of Jesus when he was on the cross. Three of them are in John, three of them are in Luke, and one's in Matthew and Mark. But that was mentioned over in Luke chapter 23. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. He wasn't saying He forgive them for eternity there. What He was saying is they don't know what they're doing and who they're doing it to. Oh, they knew they were crucifying somebody, but they had no idea they were fulfilling God's plan to save the world. Then the next thing's really interesting because between verse 45 where the robbers who were crucified reviled Him and verse 45 where the darkness and God's wrath is poured out on Him, something amazing happens and you have to flip over to Luke 23 to see it. But over in Luke 23, verses 39 through 43, we see one of the most incredible things that happens where Jesus has been on the cross for now somewhere around between two and three hours. He's on the cross. He's dealing with what every crucified victim deals with, the asphyxiation, the pain in his feet, the pain in his hands and arms, the, the back hurting from being scourged. All this stuff going on. And these two thieves, one on the right, one on the left, they are mocking him like everybody else. They're watching everybody else. But this one thief is watching him. And as he's watching, he's not hearing Jesus respond back. He's not hearing him. In fact, he heard him say, Father, forgive them. And he's like, what kind of man is this that would do this? What kind of man endures this? He, and he notices there's something different about Jesus. And then... It says in verse 39, when one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. It says the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God? You see, at that moment, that criminal realized who Jesus was, that He was Messiah. And how do you know that? Because it says since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we justly, for we are receiving the rewards of our deeds, but He's done nothing wrong. He realized He was perfect. He realized that He didn't deserve to be there, but He realized they did deserve to be there. And He said, Jesus, remember Me when You come into Your kingdom. He acknowledged He was Messiah at that point. And, and he had all the elements of true repentance. Acknowledging your own sin. Acknowledging uh, that Jesus was the only way. And unlike Judas, he turned to Jesus even when Jesus was on the cross and said, hey, remember me. Which meant he believed in a resurrection. He believed that he was not just going to die that day. He was going to be resurrected. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. But that man believed everything that is encapsulated in the Gospel. Some people say he's one of the greatest theologians who ever lived. 
because he said all that in that little amount of time. And Jesus said, Truly I say today, you will be with me in paradise. The second saying of Jesus on the cross. Today you will be in me with paradise. You know what the word paradise means? Like a garden. And I thought it's interesting that he used that. You will be with me in the garden. You will be with me today. Well, the third saying was found over in John 19 when while Jesus was up on the cross during that first three hours, His mother... And other women had followed, but then John was there. John, even though John had fled initially, John was there with his mother. And Jesus knew every Jewish boy, every Jewish boy was taught from the time that they could understand language to honor your mother and your father. And that when father's gone, it's the responsibility of the children to take care of those parents. And Jesus, being the oldest, knew that he was leaving and he saw his mother. And he what? Listen, think about this. He is in excruciating pain. But unlike us, he's not thinking about himself. He's only thinking about other people. From the time he said, Father, forgive them, to the thief on the cross, and now his mother. Mother, behold your son. Son, behold your mom. And guys, we live in a culture today where honoring your folks has almost been thrown out the window. Thrown out the window. I can't deal with it. I can't deal with it. You know, kids dealing with their parents, they just, they, they, no respect, no honor. And it doesn't matter how old your parents are. I don't care if they're 95 years old. I don't care if they're senile. I don't care if they're even unbelievers. It doesn't matter. There's no qualifications on that commandment. Right. It says honor your father and mother. And I think Jesus at that moment looked out, saw his mother and said, woman, behold your son. He didn't give that responsibility to his half-brothers or to his immediate family. He gave it to the believing man that he saw there and said, John, this is your mother from now and you take care of her. Why? Because he understood that the blood connection of a believer in Christ is stronger than our human blood connection. His brothers didn't believe. He would rather entrust his mother to a believing brother who is not of his bloodline than to his bloodline who do not believe. But that was the third saying of Jesus. And then we hit verse 45 and 27. After those three sayings, Jesus had finished up his time of suffering at the hands of man, and now he's going into the times of suffering the wrath of God. Very different. He's entering a different phase here. I mean, and for a second, I want you to just consider the wrath of God. Listen to this from Nahum. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. He is avenging and wrathful. He takes vengeance on His adversaries and He keeps wrath for His enemies. The day of the Lord is near and hastening, it says in Zephaniah. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry. I will bring distress on mankind so they will walk like the blind because they've sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh will be like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of His jealousy, all the earth will be consumed for a full and sudden end. He will make all of the inhabitants of the earth. Like that. He can snap His fingers. Every bit of life as we know it. You think about an atomic bomb. You think about a nuclear blast. How it just... Think about the whole earth. You see, one of the issues for us as Christians, we have a hard time imagining that. We don't think about that. I mean, like, if you want, like, I, I don't know if you remember a show called Scared Straight. They used to take kids that were struggling and they'd take them to a jail cell and they'd let them talk to career hardened criminals and let them see what it was like on the inside try to scare them straight, but they could show them something. If you wanted to show somebody 
what the death penalty looked like. You could show them an electric chair. You could show them somebody dying in an electric chair. I mean, like what it would do to them. But for us to think about the wrath of God consuming the whole world, we, we can't grasp that. So we don't think about that too often. We don't have an idea of even how to categorize that in our brain. Have you ever pictured that, Jimmy? The whole world just being wiped out? No, we don't think about it. It's hard for us to even put a picture to it, right? If we talked about a car wreck, you'd have an image for that. We talked about a house burning down. But the image that God chose to reveal in Scripture for what that would look like is fire. A raging fire. And when you see pictures on TV of a raging fire out in California just ripping up homes, destroying everything in its path, that's a picture that He has chosen to reveal to us in Scripture of an image that He wants us to understand. This is what it's going to look like. It's a terrible thing when this wrath comes. And so when we read about the wrath of God coming down on Jesus from Isaiah on Jesus on the cross, that's what we're going to read about in verse 45 of chapter 27. It says, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. There was darkness. You see, in the crucifixion, God shows us two things in the rest of this section today of 27 that, that comes out of this. First of all is what separation brings. What separation between us and God brings. We're going to see that very clearly demonstrated in the crucifixion. But the other thing we see is what salvation brings. Those are the two things that I think Matthew brings out today. In the crucifixion, God shows what separation between us and God looks like and He shows what salvation from Him brings. In this first verse, we see supernatural darkness. It's a supernatural darkness. This is not the sun going behind some clouds. This is not even an eclipse because it's a Passover. It's Passover, and at the Passover it was a full moon. So this was not an eclipse. This was a supernatural darkness, almost like back in Exodus chapter... Um, what was it? Uh, Exodus chapter 10, where it was the ninth plague and, um, and, and Moses had told Pharaoh, okay, you're going to have darkness. Because God had said, okay, I'm going to bring darkness over, there, uh, over the whole earth. And when He brought darkness to Egypt, it, they said it was a darkness that can be felt. Have you ever been in a place so dark that you could feel the darkness? I was sharing this morning, when I was in the, uh, the, the woods of Virginia, at Quantico, we were doing an exercise one night when I was in the Marine Corps, me and a buddy. And it was a night, nighttime exercise. And it was about 2 a.m. in the morning. I couldn't see this far in front of me. I mean, you literally, I, I, I would put my hand up and I couldn't see anything. I'm like, it was so dark that it was scary. And we were joking and laughing because we said, you know what, we're going to die. We're going to fall into some ravine because we were going into some terrain that had dips and falls and you know, little crevices. And we're like, we're going to die. We can't see nothing because we couldn't, couldn't use flashlights or anything. And that's the thing about darkness. It's when you are in supernatural darkness, guys, you can't see the dangers that are out there. You want to know why I, a, an older man rapes a two or three year old little girl and kills her? Because he's in darkness. He is in a supernatural darkness that he cannot see how evil that is. When you read about, I shared last week about that guy in South Florida that blowtorched a two year old. I mean, you can't do that. And I know those are horrific, but I want you to understand the depth to which supernatural darkness will take you. It allows people who will even preach from this book to abuse little children sexually for their own pleasure. Meanwhile, they're getting up every Sunday and telling you all these things about God and what He's going to do and His wrath and His forgiveness. It's blindness, guys. 
Spiritual blindness and supernatural darkness comes from being separated from Him. Isaiah 5 talks about it. The darkness that comes. Isaiah 13 talks about it. Joel chapter 2 talks about it. They all, Joel 3 talks about this darkness. It's always associated with God's judgment. Sp- supernatural darkness. And, and I'm going to tell you, there, this darkness that, ex- that Jesus and the world, it was scary for the people that were there. They were scared. When, when, when it says from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land, for three solid hours, there was no explanation. Now, a lot of commentators believe the whole world at that time was darkness because you've got to remember, half the world was already dark. Why? Because it was nighttime. And a lot of commentators believe God snuffed out all the stars, all the reflections. He put this supernatural thing that covered any light from going in because the true light of the world was being snuffed out on the cross because of our sin that day. And there's different theories about why. I I, I enjoyed listening to this one guy share. It was interesting that, you know, that when the high priest went into the Holy of Holies to offer a sacrifice, nobody could see. Nobody could see what he was doing. Nobody else was allowed in there. He went in there, nobody saw it. And Jesus was offering the blood in the same way that the priest offered the sacrifice According to what Hebrews said, Jesus was offering the blood that day for your sin and my sin. And God did not want people to see that. They did not want to see His Son in that kind of exposure the way He was. Well, in verse 46, and it says, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God... My God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. It brought spiritual death. It not only brought the spiritual and supernatural darkness, but it brought spiritual death. Separation from God, guys, brings spiritual death. Do you realize that Jesus referred to God, His Father, here as just God? You know why? Because at that moment, God punished Jesus as if He Himself committed every sin that had ever been committed He poured out His wrath on him at that moment. So much so that He did not call Him Father there. He said, My God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? God had to look away from His own Son. He had to turn away. He became sin for everybody. It was what 2 Corinthians said. 2 Corinthians 5 says He became sin for us. Our sin He, he became. 2 Thessalonians 1.9 says the penalty of eternal destruction is away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. That's spiritual death. And you know, you hear people say, I, I hear people say, well, you know what? If hell, you know, I'll take my chances with hell. Really? You have no idea what you're talking about. You, know, you have no idea what spiritual death really includes. I want you to imagine the worst pain you could ever imagine experiencing in your life. Multiply it a thousand times and you experience it alone with no help, no hope, in the middle of darkness with nobody to hear your cries. I want you to imagine that. It, 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 it is utterly hopeless. In Isaiah 53, we saw last week, it says He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was a chastisement that brought us peace. He took every bit of our sin. Every bit, not just of our penalty, but also the sin at that moment. That's why God had to look away. 
And, and when he looked away, he goes, Ellie, Ellie, he's crying out, God, God, why have you forsaken me? That was the fourth saying while he was on the cross. And it says over in John, knowing that it was now finished, said to fulfill Scripture, he said, I thirst. I don't think it was just a thirst for wine. I think it was a thirst for his father. I really do. I think it was a thirst for because his father had to turn away from him. Have you ever been rejected by somebody you want to be loved by and, and you long for that and they, they can't? They just can't make it work. And the thirst that you feel, you want that relationship. And you still fulfill in Scripture even in the middle of that. And then in John 19.30, he said at this time, it is finished. The word there in John 19.30 is a word called telos. T-E-L-O-S. Some of you guys know that word as tetelestai. That's the form it's in there. But it comes from the root word telos, which means it's paid. It's The debt is taken care of. But the, but the Greek way that it... Greeks were very precise in how they wrote their language. So it's in a past perfect sense, which means it was forever accomplished, never to be done again. Tetelestai. The debt is paid. When Jesus says, it is finished, it was done. And the next verse in verse 51 says, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Not from bottom to top, but from top to bottom. From God to us. It was torn. The earth shook. The rocks were split. The tombs also were opened. Many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after His resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Did you catch that? After the resurrection. Because who was the first to be resurrected? Jesus. Jesus. You see, when Lazarus was resurrected, he was resurrected into a human body that would die again. When these other people that Jesus brought back to the life, the little girl, they were all in their regular human body that would die again. I believe, based upon what this verse says, many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. The bodies, the tombs were open. They, the bodies left. They were gone. And coming out of the tombs after His resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. I believe they'd appeared in their glorified state. I really do. Based upon the way that's written. There was a lot of stuff happening here. And you know what, what it shows me? That what salvation brings in opposition to what separation brings is salvation brings forgiveness. When he says the debt is paid, it was done. The temple was the temple veil was torn. There's no more need for a priest, no more need for a sacrifice, no more need for an interce intercession by somebody. You don't need a priest to intercede for you. You don't have to have a mediator. Jesus was the one mediator. And God says, I'm doing away with this old system. I'm tearing this veil. What were the priests to do after that? You know what the next day was? It was Passover. You know what the priest was supposed to do? He was supposed to go in there under the veil, the, the veiled Holy of Holies, and offer blood as a sacrifice for the sins of the people. But the veil wasn't there anymore. And I think Mel Gibson got it right in his depiction of what happened with the earthquake. I think that probably destroyed the temple to the point where it disrupted what they did the next day. Forgiveness is what salvation brings from Him. Eternal relationship with the Creator. I'm not going to go into it because of time, but jot these passages down. Hebrews 9, 11-28. And Hebrews 10, 11-22. In both those accounts, in both those sections of Scripture, it talks about Jesus being the mediator, Him being the high priest, Him going into the Holy of Holies, 
But it's not the Holy of Holies here on earth. It's the Holy of Holies with God the Father being the perfect sacrifice. Putting His blood on that altar for you and me so that no more sacrifices are ever needed. So there's nothing that you can do to earn your way there. There's nothing you can do to make God accept you except receive what He freely offers you. That's good news. That's incredible news. But that's what salvation brings. But the other thing it brings is spiritual power. A spiritual power that we can't possess on our own. And we see that when you see people like the centurion. It says, when the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and they said, truly this was the Son of God. Now, you're talking about a Roman centurion. You're talking about a guy who has been in battle, who is trained to take instruction, who's trained not to think about his sin, who's trained not to think about the spiritual element. This guy's trained to kill people. And if you look over in the Luke account of this same thing, it says not only was he in awe, but he began glorifying or praising God. And the word there is giving the proper honor and respect due to whatever you're offering praise to. So many commentators believe that they were the second and third and fourth, maybe fifth believers. So the first believer after the death of Christ was, or at the death of Christ was the thief on the cross. Then you have the centurion. And it says, and they here, remember? It says, they were filled with awe. Not just him, they, the people with him, the other soldiers there. Truly, this was the Son of God. Amen. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and mother of the sons of Zebedee. Do, do, do you wonder where the sons of Zebedee were? Where were the men? Where were they at? Hiding somewhere. Wasn't John a son of John Zebedee? Was there. John? John was. John was the only one there. Yeah. The youngest of them all. He was there. But for these women to be there, and even for John to be there, was a spiritual power. And what we're going to see next even in um, Nicodemus and, and Joseph of Arimathea, it doesn't talk about Nicodemus here, but it does in another account. They went together to take care of Jesus' body. And so there's a spiritual power that comes from salvation, guys, that you will never get outside of having a relationship with Jesus Christ. True. You, you cannot power through the spiritual life on your own. You have to have that relationship with Him where His Spirit lives inside of you and where He's empowering you to do the things that He wants you to do. And if you go on to the next verse, it says in verse 57, when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and he went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting, there sitting opposite the tomb. As I was thinking about this, I remembered reading something by a guy named Ken Geyer. Ken Geyer is a guy who wrote about stories in the Bible and had a, a really unique gift, I think, to be able to paint a picture of these Bible stories in a way that we could envision. And as I went back and I read that, you know how if, if you've never had a zoology class, if you take zoology and you go out in the woods, it looks completely different, right? Well, all this time I've been working through Matthew and when I read something I read by King Guy years ago, it, it's like completely new to me now. And I saw things in there that I never really noticed. And so I want to read from you just an excerpt of what he wrote about Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. I want you to go back with me to that day at that moment 
when three hours of darkness has passed, Jesus had, by the way, Jesus, when He said it is finished, it says He yielded up His Spirit. Most people were fighting for life. He chose when He left. If you remember, they had to break the legs of the other guys. They weren't dead yet. Jesus chose when His life left Him. Some people believe if He did not leave, that He would have still been on the cross to this day because of who He was. But He chose when to leave the body. He never stopped being sovereign. And it says He yielded up His Spirit, which means He said goodbye to go and then be resurrected three days later. But listen to what Ken Geyer says. Darkness entombs Jerusalem. A great light has gone out of the world. Normally, the dead are left on the cross as food for vultures and wild dogs as a reminder that crimes against the empire doesn't pay. But the religious leaders have asked that the bodies be removed before sundown, before their holy day begins. Such irony. So calloused in the killing of the Savior, yet so careful in keeping the Sabbath. Ironic also that it is religious leaders who come to bury Jesus too who did not consent to the plan. The men are among Israel's most influential. Joseph of Arimathea, a rich and prominent member of the Jewish ruling council, and Nicodemus, also a member of the council, a Pharisee, and a preeminent teacher in Israel. Both have kept their relationship with him in the shadows. They feared the controversy and the consequences of making their faith public. But now that Jesus is dead, a new boldness emerges in their lives. Joseph goes directly to Pilate for permission to give Jesus a proper burial. To Pilate, the very man who sent him to the cross. Now imagine for a second what he risked to go up there. To go and ask for permission to bury Jesus. One, he risked being associated with this traitor. He could have been killed himself. And then from the Jewish perspective, he put his whole career on the line that day. Because from a Jewish perspective, the next day was Passover. He went up there and he would be touching a dead body. Which would mean he could not celebrate Passover with everybody else. But you know, a guy pointed out to me this morning, and he's right, back in Numbers, a provision was made for somebody who touched a dead body to celebrate Passover a month later. And isn't it interesting that hundreds of years before this happened, there was already a provision in place for him to touch the Savior that day and not have to miss the last Passover, really, by the way, that would, would have been celebrated. Because from that point on, it would have been communion. He wouldn't know that yet because they, they weren't there that night that Jesus instituted communion with the disciples. But, but here He is interceding with Pilate. And Pilate said, permission granted. Joseph got linen. Nicodemus brought spices. Coming to the cross, and this is the part that got me that I hadn't thought about. They are stunned to view the lifeless slump of torn flesh that was once such a vital Savior. They both begin to weep for all the things that they didn't say. For all the things that they did not do. For staying in the shadows. As they take Him off the cross, Joseph wrestles to get his wrist and his feet off the nails. They see his head punctured from thorns, his face swollen and discolored from Jewish, Jewish and Roman fists. His shoulders pulled out of socket from the gravity of the last six hours. His hands and feet exposed ragged muscle and white bone. His back and his rib cage clawed from the scourging, and Nicodemus sees before him the incarnation of Isaiah. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form marred beyond human likeness. In the courtroom of their hearts, they realize loving Jesus in private was just another way of what Isaiah proclaimed despising Him and esteeming Him not. Both are ashamed for not doing more, for not objecting more forcefully. Shouldering their guilt, they pick up the body to take it to Joseph's tomb. Suddenly, Nicodemus remembers another thing from Isaiah. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in death. It's as if Jesus brought them both to this moment 
They realize that they've spared Jesus the shame of a criminal's burial in the garbage dump. And now they both have come out of the shadows. And I think at that moment, guys, they realized which side of the line they were on. And they were on the right side. They may not have been on the right side earlier in their career, but that moment was a dividing, a, a dividing point for them. We all have dividing points. There's one in my life. There's, I'm sure there's hopefully one in your life where you realize, and what is so encouraging about that to me is they could have wallowed in their guilt and walked away feeling defeated like, like Judas. But instead, they both became bold. They had stood with Jesus. The question is not when you stand with Jesus, it's if you will stand with Jesus. Are you going to stand with it? Are you going to keep your faith in the shadows? Because as I see this, the only way to do that is to be in relationship with Him and to know that your power comes from Him, not from you. Amen. That's why the veil was broken. He does it. He says in Matthew 4.19, follow me, I will make you. He gives us boldness. So forgiveness, eternal relationship with the Creator, salvation brings spiritual power, but you know what else? By His grace, God gives us supernatural proof. It says in verse 62, the next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests, the Pharisees, gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that impostor said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he's risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went. They made the tomb secure by sealing the stone. They put a Roman seal on it and they set a guard. God gave a supernatural proof. You know why? Listen, they could, have, they could have outed Jesus as a fraud. Those Roman soldiers could have outed Him as a fraud. But they didn't. They went AWOL. That, that's one of the greatest testimonies to the fact that there was a resurrection. There's nobody saying, we saw the disciples come and get it. Nobody said that. They, they were nowhere to be found. We know from one account that the leaders paid them to say that they <coughs> took it away, but that didn't fly. Nobody repeats that rumor other than what we read about in Scripture. That was not written in any other historical text. Could have been. There were other things written in, about Rome from that time period. The Roman seal was broken. The tomb was empty. The large stone was rolled back and the, the guards were AWOL, which by the way, carried a death penalty for them. I say, that doesn't make sense. That, that they would allow anybody to come and take Jesus because they would have been... They would have died. died. They would have died. They would have died. So... The last thing Jesus said on the cross was, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He called Him Father there. <clears throat> he didn't just a few hours earlier, but there He did. My prayer is that each one of you would be able to say that when you go from here to there. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Into your hands I commit my spirit that you give him your life, that you're not separated from him. Guys, the, the greatest tragedy in the world is that people hear this message. A guy said this morning, why does one guy here and this guy over here hears the same message and doesn't believe? He doesn't believe. Sovereignty of God. So only the there's there's no I can't tell you. It's not in the way it was shared. It's merely in the grace and mercy of God to say, you know what? I'm going to illuminate Greg, but for some reason Brad's in the dark. I don't know. I can't answer that. It doesn't mean I shouldn't pray for Brad. I shouldn't reach out to Brad. But you can share the same message with a group. One listens and responds. One doesn't. But the other thing that we all need to be guarded against is just because somebody say they respond doesn't mean they really do. 
And just because someone doesn't respond right away doesn't mean they won't later. That's exactly right. And the thief on the cross is one of the greatest examples in Scripture of someone who spent their entire life in rebellion to God, but when they had the encounter with Jesus before they died, they said yes. Now me, I don't want to take a chance and wait because I don't know when I'm going to die. None of us do. And I know what the Bible says and I know what my eyes see and I know what my heart responds to and I say, yes, Lord, yes, I want to follow You. And my hope and prayer for you is that not only you would not be separated to, from Him, but, and this is a key thing, don't be a shadow Christian like Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. Because I think you'll end up with regret at the end of your life. Don't be a shadow Christian. As I read that, it was sad to me as I thought about them because... They were encouraged by, I think, I do think they were encouraged maybe by that moment of realizing, wow, this is fulfilling Scripture. But I think there was a lot of regret where they go, man, I wish I would have said more. I wish I would have done more. We all have time right now, but we don't know how much time. True. Let's not be shadow Christians. Let's not be in the 95%. Let's be 5%ers that says we're going to live boldly for Him. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we love You and thank You so much for what You have done for us on that cross. We could never, ever thank You enough. It's, it's incredibly um, humbling to know that You love us the way we are and You want to conform us to Your image and You've called us to follow You and Lord, I pray for every man in here that right now, even as we consider what that looks like for us, that we would take a moment just to reflect in our own life if we've been living separated from You in any way, shape, or form. And if that's been true, then we would acknowledge it and say to You, Lord, we want to be with You today. We want to follow You today. Help us to live as bold, men of faith, not shadow Christians, not people who hide because of fear of consequences of what it would mean if we are vocal about our faith, but you would give us wisdom and help us to, to be a light in this dark world in which we live. Thank you so much for Jesus, Lord. We love you. We praise you. Bless these men as they go. Thank you so much that you hear these prayers in Christ's name. Amen.